This week's episode of DVD Clutter deals explicitly with themes of sexual violence. Please look after yourself while listening. Hi, I'm Beck. And I'm Paul. And this is DVD Clutter. You can't see me dancing, but I am. I mean, you can see me, Paul. Our listeners can't. Correct. Another week, another DVD to declutter. That's right. Yes. And this week is a doozy. It's my DVD. Yeah, it's your DVD. Um, It's actually, it's not my DVD. Okay. Whoops. It's Laura's DVD. Yeah, I was wondering, it didn't sort of feel like a Beck DVD. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I guess not. Did we mention it's Kill Bill? No, not at all. It's Kill Bill Volume (laughs) 1. The first volume. Volume 1. The first volume of Kill Bill. Yeah, I mean, I really like this film. Oh, yeah? Just as a, a spoiler, but... I don't know if I would have bought it or not. That's true. It's a good question. I'm not sure. But it is in our DVD collection since we merged DVD collections, the all-important step in a relationship. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it is one that we need to think about maybe getting rid of. We had to consider it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Now, if this is the first time you've been listening to DVD Clutter, look, you might have in your... um, lockdown time gone through every other podcast out there and finally making your way to dvd clutter it's a podcast where every the gold week, really that's it the, every week the hidden gem <laughs> we get a dvd that's from our collection we watch it we discuss it and we decide whether we keep it we send it to the op shop or we chop it in two with a samurai sword and the blood spurts everywhere yeah So we're looking at Kill Bill this week, and normally when we start off, we get a bit of an insight into how the DVD came into the owner's life. Bex told us that already, but she might tell us about how the film... Well, actually, I'll talk a little bit about the DVD a little bit more, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Because I thought it was a really interesting one to do. Well, first of all, we had to do it because it's in the collection. But second of all, I quite liked the film, so I wanted to watch it again and see if I still liked it. But thirdly, finally, let me get to the point. (laughs) It is a pirated copy. Of Kill Bill. Oh, no. Which we weren't 100% sure if it was or not because it's still in the cover and everything. And it doesn't actually look like the original cover that the DVD comes in, but it's still like a professionally kind of looking DVD. Not as professional as one that you would actually buy from the DVD store, but one that you would buy from, let's say, Malaysia yeah, or Thailand or Bali when you go on your summer holidays with your family. That wasn't me, obviously. (laughs) I would never buy a pirated DVD. I just got them from my friends who bought them for me. Yeah, piracy is a crime. Yes, seriously, piracy is a crime. And little did you know, at that point in your life, like this wouldn't have been back in the day, Laura would have got it back in the day when she was probably in, you know, 16, 17 years old. And I remember around that time, you know, I had friends who would go to Bali for their holidays and I'd just be like, whoa, all these DVDs for so cheap. And they were so, they were kind of inaccessible because I didn't get that much pocket money and what little I did, I probably didn't want to spend most of it on a DVD. Yeah. So it was only special DVDs that I would buy. 
at that age. Yeah. And I think you just feel a bit more entitled. Like you don't realize how much work and how much money goes into making the film as well. And then as you get older, and especially for those of us who went on to study it, you're like, oh, whoops. Yeah. And then you you start to realize the effect that the pirating can have on the industry. That's it. Particularly small industries like the Australian industry, which luckily Kill Bill obviously is not an Australian film. But yeah. Yeah. It was interesting to find out that it was a pirated copy. And was it a dodgy pirate? In any Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I am nodding enthusiastically. <laughs> so Laura couldn't hundred percent remember, so we looked at it, it kinda looked like it didn't look great, it didn't look the highest quality. And then we put it on in the D V D player and could barely watch it. Like oh, no. the quality was so bad. It wasn't it wasn't that bad that, you know, you could see someone the camera wasn't like moving around the cinema where they were filming it and someone yeah. didn't like get up in front of us and walk across the screen or something. Which I've heard of happening before, but it was just the quality was so bad that we watched about fifteen or so minutes of it. Yeah. And then I was like, I think I've done my duty. I'm not going to be able to sufficiently review this film if we watch it like this. So then we watched it on Stan. Yeah, which is how I watched it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Even though my family did have the DVD back in Ballarat. Oh, but how are you going to get that? Yeah. And it was Dad's DVD. Very special. Mm. In terms of the movie... Mm. I remember being fascinated by this movie before I even really watched it because there was something really romantic about the idea of the the blood-spattered bride, like the idea of this completely horrific thing happening on oh, yeah. a day that's meant to be so like innocent and holy and special. And I think that really captured my attention. So I've even dressed up as the blood-spattered bride before. Oh, wow. And not because at that point in time, not because I even like loved it was for a tarantino themed party so i yeah. guess i had limited options but i <laughs> uh, remember the tarantino themed parties I like, <laughs> yes. beck and i would have both been in film studies circles and yeah this seemed like every fifth 21st i went to <laughs> yeah. was it's tarantino themed. yeah and you know not everyone can get away with that yellow leather suit so some of us just want to wear a wedding dress for once in our goddamn lives and yep. we just happen to put blood on it and then it's easy. Very easy um, for me. It was often just the reservoir dogs. Oh, uh, yeah. One of the dudes. Yeah. Yep. Actually, my first, this is like a, I don't even, I don't know if I talked about this when we did reservoir dogs, but one of my first Tarantino memories was in Canada when I lived in Canada when I was 14 and someone wanted to watch Reservoir Dogs and it was so scary that I had to go and like sit in the other room. Yeah. But I feel like over time, my understanding or my tolerance for gore, gore has definitely increased. Yeah. As we'll see, like when we watch something like True Blood as well. <laughs> That's it. And I think we'll talk about it later, but the gore in Kill Bill especially is... Over the top. It's a different kind of gore. Yeah, it's... it's Com- yeah, completely different to Reservoir Dogs. Yes. That is quite realistic and... Almost realistic, yeah. And sort of painful to watch, whereas Kill Bill, like, you know, it's it's silly. It's anime-esque. Yeah. Like, like, it's a cartoon. You know, like it's meant to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's... I guess that's how it came into my life. I, I feel like I watched it again between, you know, the very, very first time I watched it and 
watching it as an adult and kind of I think it's taken a little bit of time for the full appreciation of Tarantino's skill as a filmmaker I guess yeah which we've talked about before like he he knows how to make a film Mm. yeah and he speaks this cinematic language he certainly does yeah and we'll talk a bit about he the way that he does that later on as well in terms of his skill and how what he pulls from and that Mm. kind of stuff but, yeah, that's it. Great. Well, time for me to go through the plot. Yes. So, classic Tarantino jumps all over the place, but I'm just basically going to give a rundown of the story rather than sort of exactly the order that he puts it in. Yeah. So, basically, there's this unnamed bride who, on her wedding day, was assass... Well, was there was an attempted assassination. The whole bridal party was killed. That's it. Everyone in the chapel was killed. Uh you see that she was sort of lying there almost dead and Bill shoots her in the head. We find out, though, that she didn't actually die. Instead, she's just in a coma. She wakes up from that coma in a fairly icky scene that I'm sure we'll dissect a bit later. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been, like, four years? Four years, yeah. So she's been in a coma for four years. That's it, yeah. Gets back on her feet and now is on a mission to get revenge against those who wronged her. And most importantly, kill Bill. Dun, dun, dun. So on the list of people that are wronged her are her old assassin buddies. Yeah, which we, we should probably mention. The reason she was assassinated was because she was trying to leave her life as an assassin. Yeah. She was part of this, like, you know, a group of assassins run by Bill. Yeah, run by Bill. Oh, by the way, the bride's played by Uma Thurman. I don't think I'd said that yet. No, correct. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got the Deadly Viper Squad. There's Lucy Liu as Oren Ishii. Mm-hmm. You've got Vivisha A. Fox playing um, Vanita Green. Mm-hmm. You've got L. Driver played by Daryl Hannah. So good. Then you've got Bud played by Michael Madsen. I think that's all the Deadly Vipers. And, of course, Bill played by David Cardine. Mm-hmm. So, she, yeah, she wants to go off and kill all these people that wronged her. The first one we see, though it wasn't the first one that happened, is Green, Vanita Green. So Uma Thurman arrives at this suburban house. Vanita's long since retired. She's got a daughter now, but they still have a fight. It's a pretty cool, spectacular knife fight. It's an epic kitchen knife fight. Do you remember what Vanita Green's codename is? Yes, I just just found that it was Copperhead. Copperhead. They're all named after snakes, I think. And yeah, the bride hen- is Black Mamba. That's it. Hence the deadly vipers. Mm-hmm. It's all coming together. That's it. So no, Not an idiot, that Tarantino. <laughs> not an idiot. Yeah. So Copperhead ends up trying to pull a gun and the bride kills her. We then flash back to the very first kill and that took place. In Japan, she went after Oren Ishii. We find out about Oren Ishii, like, and what led her to be an assassin, and then what she's been doing since she left the Deadly Vipers, and that mm-hmm. is become the leader of the Japanese Yakuza. Yeah, um, which is a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah, and then it becomes <laughs> it's a pretty massive deal. Yeah, just a small thing. Just a small thing. That's just it. And you're like, how is the bride going to take down the head of the Yakuza? That's going to be real tricky. She's got all sorts of bodyguards. She's got her personal bodyguard, Gogo Yabari. And then she's also got her army called the Crazy 88. The bride's going to have to get through them to take down Oren. And does she do it, Paul? Does she do it? Oh, she sure does. Basically, she gets... She sure does. She gets a awesome sword from 
Atori Hanzo. Who's like a crazy samurai sword master. Yeah, who's retired, but she says she wants to use it to kill Bill. So he's like, sweet, here you go. Here's your sword. (laughs) Well, he feels guilty for training Bill up to be a deadly assassin. That's it. But then she goes in, she gets through all of the 88, through the bodyguard, all the way to Oren. They have a a great sword fight in the snow. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Oren dies. Long live Lucy Lou. That's all I can say. <laughs> so she's crossed two off her list. Um, oh, also, Oren's lawyer is a good friend of Bill's, Sophie. And she's played by Julie Dreyfus. So she gets her arm cut off and Uma Thurman drops her at a hospital to sort of warn Bill that revenge is coming. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. So we're left with that sort of cliffhanger for part two. So that's the plot. Give us your review, Beck. All right. I still really liked it. I think it's really entertaining. It's it's very visually pleasing. Like, everything is so precise. Yeah. And it's like a Wes Anderson film, but with blood and swords and shit. Yeah, that's it's it. It's just very... Everything is, everything is precise. Everything is done for a reason. Everything is very measured and put together. The story... I like the story... I don't know. I, I still really like it. And there's a couple of things, you know, we can talk about as we go through. And I'm sure we will. And a, a lot of that sort of stuff too, I think we you got to put in context that this is, it's as close as I think, apart from when he went and did his sort of grindhouse experiment, this is as close to sort of that grindhouse cinema that I think he's ever got. Like this is the the schlocky, over the top salute to the the cinema that he grew up watching. And I think... yeah. Part of that is some of the bits that are, I guess, more gross. And I think that's that's part yes. of that cinema. Yeah, totally. I don't think you can... I mean, the whole conversation about, you know, violence in movies and violence in video games and that kind of thing, and Tarantino has been pulled into that a lot. And I think there are a lot of things to approach him for, and I don't think he's a good person. But, I mean, that's a pretty harsh... I don't think... <laughs> I think he's caused uh, harm in places where if he was more thoughtful and humble, he would not have caused harm. Yeah. I think he's an egomaniac who wants to do his thing. Unfortunately, his thing is make some well-put-together movies. Yeah. And with the whole debate on violence in film and violence in video games and cinema and the media in general, I feel like I don't think it's right to bring that into the debate. I feel like that's it's I feel like that is uh different to what I I might previously have thought, but yeah. That's what I think now. I think especially in the context of this film, because this film, especially re-watching it now, I haven't watched it in, I'd say, a decade, maybe. Yep. Rewatching it now, it is so cartoony, and the violence that yes. I'm talking about, it is so yes, so over-the-top and ridiculous that it, I just don't think there is as much of an argument for this particular film. Yeah, 100%. And I guess that's what I meant when I was, when I was saying that. Because yeah. now when I think about... Uh, Reservoir Dogs I'm a bit, a bit <laughs> It's like Whoa. But But yeah Definitely in this one It's just so Like you can tell That it is inspired by Or You can tell that it's inspired By other films In the past And a certain genre of film Where this is kind of Part of the genre And it is so stylized And so Over the top And it doesn't feel real Like it's mm. not The scene where The bride fights The um, Oranishi's Army The 88 yeah, What are they called Crazy, the crazy 88, 88. Like, it's literally one person against 88 people or more because then she's got her bodyguards as well. And 
she wins and there's just you know it's just so ridiculous and so so over the top that the scene at the end there's this shot where it goes um there's no music like I think there's pop music playing pretty much the whole time in classic Tarantino style in that scene where she's like one person fighting 88 other people and there's pop music playing over the top of it and then at the end he's got a shot where it's literally just silence and you just kind of see this kind of what looks like minced meat (laughs) <laughs> on the, on the floor like just like it's pretty disgusting but it's like it's just not I don't yeah. know it's over the top it's so over the top that it's like oh yeah this is not reality it's that idea of sort of like the the carnival or sort of like carnivalesque you've got the sort of extreme grossness it's the same sort of thing like that comes up not to sound like too much of a wanker but it's the same sort of stuff that comes up when you look through I guess all the way from Shakespeare to South Park it's that thing that mm. draws in a crowd where you've got over-the-top focus, I guess, on the expulsion of body fluids, really, is what it is. Whether it be blood, (laughs) piss, or shit, it is laughing at that. And it's just that to a T. I mean, this scene isn't meant to be laughed at, I don't think. But 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 it's it's meant to be entertaining. So, sorry, yeah, it's not meant to be like... It's definitely meant to be entertaining. It's not not a riot. It's a joke with a punchline, but it it is there to have fun. It's not not to look at the consequences or to to view it through any sort of realistic lens. No. But even in that, I think the way that he balances this film with some of the more real moments also just harks back to the kind of cinema that he's trying to reproduce. And I think that comes from a lot of the cinema that he is trying to reproduce was poorly made, so it never sort of handled these transitions so well that in trying to echo that, that I think he sort of captures that sort of jarring feeling you get from that sort of cinema. But it it sort of takes some pondering, I guess. I mean, watching it this time, and can I just say, I watched it the best way possible. I watched it on my giant screen TV in a dark house. I got a giant bowl of popcorn, like... Oh my god, so good. And just sat there and let it come in. And I really enjoyed watching it, but I sort of went through moments with it sort of going, maybe this is his worst movie because it is just too schlocky, to sort of going at full 360, well, wait, 180. What do you mean by, <laughs> can Can you explain yourself what you mean by schlocky? Like, it is, it is just, it is just grindhouse cinema. It's all about the fighting. It's all about the, the blood. Mm. The fighting and the blood and the fighting. The, <laughs> that's it. Well, that's it. And there's not much more to it than that no with his other films you know there is there is more to it whereas here it's it's just pure entertainment yes it is pure entertainment it feels like a, it feels like a blockbuster like fucking avengers movie or something you know mm. like there's a basic storyline we go through it but we're watching it for the joy of the the things on the screen not for the deeper meaning i guess yeah and i think that's probably why i struggled so much with the plot because the plot is Someone tried to kill her and did kill her family, so now she's killing them. That's it. That's all I should yeah, have said. Plot- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. The plot is the same as a lot of his other movies. You know, he loves the revenge plot. Yeah. yeah. And I think... I don't know if we... I just completely forget what we talked about in our last podcast. So, to <laughs> our viewers, our listeners, not our viewers, our listeners, if you have just listened to the Reservoir Dogs one and now you're back for this, we talk about the same shit. I'm really sorry. But... I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but I made my year 11s a couple of years ago do a auto study into Tarantino and they wrote like a 
kind of a research project into his life and talked about the inspirations and where you can see where he got certain things in these three different films that we looked at. And Kill Bill was one of the films that we looked at, as well as Jackie Brown and another one that we will have to do later, Inglorious Bastards. See, that, that one's my favourite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do you have it on DVD? No. Okay. Well, it's just sitting over there, so Great. I've got it. Don't worry. Yeah, and maybe we can talk a little bit about his background and when he was a sponge of a little child soaking up all of this cinematic knowledge and how that is kind of spewed back out in the form of his different films. Because I think this one, this one in particular, well, I mean, a lot of it, like Jackie Brown, for example, we've talked about before as being his kind of version of a, a black exploitation film. This one, he's kind of doing, I guess, a similar thing for, for some of the old samurai and kung fu movies. But put in a blender with the, like, spaghetti westerns sort of, or shitter spaghetti westerns too. <laughs> this film was sort of originally designed as one big film, but then got split into the two. And yep. I Thank think, God for that editor. Yeah, I know, right? But I think it, again, just shows that, like, this encapsulates that sort of grindhouse sort of just throwing whatever's on the screen that they've got. Like, you know, you've you've got half a Western reel and you've got half a samurai reel. That's what they're showing today. Yeah, but he's done it deliberately. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I don't mean to say that he's just sort of throwing stuff at the canvas, but he's most directly inspired by everything being thrown at the canvas, more so than I think any of his other projects. Yes, he is literally, I mean, there are some great YouTube videos. I encourage our listeners to go onto YouTube and watch some really excellent examples of Kill Bill, especially where he has literally picked scenes from other films and mm. replicated them. And he does that, I think, in, in a lot of his different films, but I think it's it's really clear in this one. And one of the films that he really copied from is Lady Snowblood. Did you read about that? Yeah. Yeah, so it was a Japanese revenge story, essentially the same story where you've got Lady Snowblood. Her parents were killed when she was very young. She grows up to become a really amazing assassin and vows revenge on those who killed her family. So her, I guess her story is kind of squished into Oren Ishii's story in Kill Bill, but the whole revenge plot obviously is transferred over as well. Um and there are scenes that are, you know, direct yeah. copies, almost shot for shot copies from this film. Yeah. And he, so he grew up like just soaking in cinema. Like he worked in a, first of all, he worked in a porn cinema yeah. for a long time, which I think is really interesting in the way that he approaches relationships and sex. And and that's not so much evident in Kill Bill, but I think in, in some mm. of his other movies, you can really see that. But then he worked at a video shop, right? I mean, he must he must have an amazing memory because I'm sure I've watched millions of movies. I can't mm. fucking remember them. But he just like has watched this, has this wealth of knowledge about film and just is able to go, oh yeah, like that scene from that movie or yeah, crazy. No, it is. And I think, yeah, this is the perfect film to sort of demonstrate that. Yeah. Why don't we talk about some standout scenes? Chronological order or should we just... Name our top two. Just Let's just go for it. You go first. Okay. I really enjoy the knife fight at the beginning. I think it, it sets up the movie perfectly for what what's going to happen. And also sort of has that... Yeah. The professional tone of the assassins to it that I think keeps it sort of lighthearted. Mm. Just, yeah. Yes. They have, they have this... There's this great interplay between them about to kill each other and them also catching up after four years of not seeing each other. <laughs> 
and trying to pretend um, everything's fine because Copperhead's daughter has just come home from school. So, Yeah, and I think it, it opens you up to how the tone of the movie is going to play out and that it sort of it's not going to be that serious. Because even though... No, that's right. That, that scene could be handled completely differently. It could be handled not necessarily poorly, but just the way that they even they interact with the child in that scene, I think, demonstrates that you can't take any of this too seriously, that it's all sort of yeah pretty farcical. Yes, totally. It's a Farcical <laughs> is a good word for yeah. it. It's like a pantomime almost. Yeah. Like. Oh, that's just it. And you, that scene does perfectly bring you into that way of thinking, so you, it sets you up for the rest yeah. of the movie. I say that after you've just sat through a woman getting shot in the head and then just surviving completely fine. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things, like if we talk about the start of the movie, because actually right at the start we see, so we see the black and white kind of image of her being shot at her wedding. And then we go straight to her going to the house where she's going to kill Copperhead. And then we go back in time again. Typical Tarantino fashion jumps backwards and forwards. The temporal order is non-linear, as I will get my students to write. (laughs) And then, yeah, in in keeping with that kind of farcical nature, she then drives off in a, a massive truck not a truck what's it called a massive ute with with the word pussy wagon written in pink lettering across the back and you're like huh and then it kind of we kind of find out a bit more about how she got the car and and we go back to her when she woke up in hospital which i do technically have issues with the fact that she wakes up in hospital after four years and within like a couple of hours she can walk (laughs) and and fight like yeah. I don't think so. Her body would have completely wasted away. Yeah, I remember asking Dad about that, being like, oh, would someone's leg, yes. legs really not work? And he's like, yes, their legs would not work. And also their arms would not work. And also, you know, Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, they did. It was nice that they had a little nod to the fact that her legs wouldn't work. But she, then she army crawls across the, <laughs> across the floor and you're like, oh, so her arms are completely fine. She's just been working them out as she's sleeping but that scene you like you said at the start that scene is pretty horrific because she's in this kind of i guess she's been in a coma for four years and she's put in the back room of this hospital and she's being raped by one of the nurses or i don't know someone who works at the hospital he's been letting people come in and they pay him a fee and then and then they're allowed to rape her while she's in a coma um, and she wakes up to that. That's kind of when she wakes up. Yeah, and I and then that's the, that's her first two kills. Yeah, which I is... found that. Um, so I couldn't remember that that was actually sort of in there. I I thought my memory of it was that she'd woken up to it like it hadn't happened before. Like you know, this was like the first you know, and she'd saved herself. Mm. But it's very it's made very explicit no. that that's it's not you know many times. Yeah, yeah. and that's he says. I think he says like she's a fighter. At one point. Yeah. Yeah, But that's what I was sort of getting at, at the way that this film just picks up exactly on that sort of grindhouse cinema. Because all of them sort of had this really odd relationship with sex and especially with consensual sex. Maybe you could explain or give us a little overview of what grindhouse cinema is. So grindhouse cinema is basically just exploitation cinema. So cinema that was made very cheaply to go to mass markets at sort of these dodgy cinema houses or at drive-ins so it was made incredibly cheaply thrown together if it was scripted it was scripted very poorly and it was made on the cheap so that it could go to a very specific target audience so there was sort of like a teen market so that would be sort of interested in your horror 
any sort of sex sort of stuff. Yeah, I guess it was made made for the money rather than for the more noble cause, we would think, of telling a story or representing a culture. Exactly, that's just it. It was made, to, made on the cheap to sell a heap of tickets. And I guess yeah. really the one that comes through a lot is sort of the sex and violence because that was something that would sell tickets because of shock value and was yep. also very cheap to produce. So, yeah, a lot of Grindhouse Cinema, and if you, you watch it, like... People always think, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun to sit through these sort of old campy films. And we're going to get to a lot of them later in my DVD collection. The fact of the matter is a lot of them are really shit and boring. Like they'll put put together with not a lot of thought. Yeah. So it's not actually as fun, but a lot of them really do have quite a difficult relationship. Yeah. Especially with consensual sex. Right. Um, And that is definitely reflected here. Mm. Um, and, but you get that payoff of her killing these two blokes straight away. That's just it. And, great. and revenge exploitation, and including rape revenge films, was a whole sort of subgenre of the exploitation cinema. So it, it's taking in those flavours there. Yeah. One of the one of my favourite scenes, which kind of links to, to that one, the one that we're just talking about now, is where Daryl Hannah comes into it. And oh, yeah. She's only in it for like two seconds, but... She is, like, dressed... She's one of the other assassins. She's been tasked by Bill to come and kill the bride while she's in a coma to, like, get it over and done with. So she's really excited to do it because she hates her anyway. But this is... If you haven't seen Kill Bill, you'll, you'll probably know the song. The... Um, I've got to get my... Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> Which, you know, we didn't stop whistling in our house uh, for the weeks and weeks after we watched Kill Bill again. And I don't know, that scene is, again, it's like so over the top. And so, you know, she walks, she's meant to be in quotations disguise. <laughs> and she's in, she's in this like Halloween sexy nurse's costume, walking down very deliberately with a syringe. You know, it's so over the top. It's, it, I don't even know what that kind of image comes from. Like what, where is that kind of image taken from? It feels like it's calling something, and I'm sure people out there that are bigger Tarantino fans than us will be able to tell us exactly where that comes from, but it feels feels like part of the pop culture subconscious, you know? Yes, it does, and, yeah, it definitely does. I think I just like how stylized that scene is and how everything is, like, kind of just really neatly placed together and deliberate. She walks very deliberately. She's, you know, everything is done with very, very kind of, for our listeners, I'm sitting up straighter as I talk <laughs> about this because I feel like everything is very poised and choreographed in that particular scene. And the music, Tarantino, you know, he, he puts a lot of thought into his soundtracks and it's no different with, with Kill Bill. The music in this movie yeah. is spectacular yeah so that's one of my standout scenes another one that i think we should talk about too is the animation used in this oh definitely so when we hear about oren's past it's narrated by uma thurman and it goes into an animated sequence which is super stylized which is another you know way that the film sort of deals with violence is through through this stylized nature um you could say that i'd say there's probably actually really two scenes in this film that feel animated one of them is actually animated and one of them is that crazy 88 battle which for all intents and purposes is animation could have been yeah yeah but yeah it is this beautifully animated scene by a japanese production studio that tarantino put in there and i think what it does is it it sort of breaks up sections of the film but also yeah reflects oh i was reading about this before but one of his big inspirations for this movie or one of the ones we really took from a lot 
used a lot of still photography to break it up and it and it was sort of I guess a homage mm. to that. While I guess also Well he actually he he hates the word homage. Okay, so, sorry. Sorry, Mr. Which, Tarantino. <laughs> which I'll, I'll explain it in a bit, but yeah. keep going. Which he, he steals from that. But also, I think it steps the audience into that sort of anime world that the rest of the battles take place in. Yes, definitely. And it's a, an emotional scene. And it's interesting that it is done with anime, where you get you see um, Oren Ishii watch her parents be killed in front of her, um, which is yeah very much that Lady Snowblood storyline. And her kind of journey from there to become this super assassin, which I did get annoyed because I think in the voiceover, Irma Thurman's character calls her one of the top female assassins in the world. And I was like, why the clarifier? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure she's just literally, she's literally one of the top assassins in the world. She's the head of the Yakuza and she's not even Japanese born. She's Japanese American, yep. which Lucy Liu is not Japanese American, she's Chinese American. Yeah. But, you know, Hollywood, man. Well, isn't that the thing isn't that the thing that they say in the movie? She's Chinese American and No, she's Japanese American. Or she's Japanese Chinese American. Like she does she in the movie she is Yeah. partially ja- Japanese. Oh, okay. Cuz I thought it was that she was raised in Japan and had a Chinese mother and an American father. So that's why there's that scene where someone says Oh, is it actually? Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Oh, oh, let me just check. Oh, I hope so. That would be better. Uh, I can't check straight away. But yeah, I thought that's why it's that scene where she's getting inducted as the head of the Yakuza and there's that guy being like, she's not even Japanese. And then she goes and cuts his head off. Well, doesn't she say, doesn't he say like something about American scum or whatever? And I thought that was a reference to her, the American side of her, yeah. but maybe not. And then she has that speech. She's like, you know, I'm happy to talk about anything you want, but if anyone ever talks about my <laughs> Chinese or my American heritage again in a negative manner, I will fucking have your head. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe she was just raised in Japan and that would be, that would tie that together nicely. Yeah. It might not be. I might just be trying to push that on it to make it, make it better. <laughs> Look, just, let's just make excuses. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love her character. Lucy Liu is... Just an awesome actress. Yeah, I know. Anyway, and I think in this particular role, she's just such a boss and she just has so such control over all of her minions and is just a role model, even though, you know, you don't really want her to be a role model. Yeah, people need to put her in more stuff. <laughs> they do. Oh, my God. She's so good. I know. She spent all that time um, doing that Sherlock Holmes TV show. Yeah, I know. She did. Maybe she wanted a break. Yeah. For an Asian-American actress to be as big as Lucy Liu was at the time, that was pretty rare. Mm. Even now, like, the diversity that we see on our screens is still just so yeah. shocking. And in the 90s, and you know, it would have been even worse. It would have been so hard. Oh, very much so. What are you reading about? Hmm? Oh, sorry. I was just quickly looking at what Lucy Liu has been doing. She's also an artist and she's been doing a lot of art exhibits too. Oh, cool. So. Having Lucy Liu in there did make me think of Charlie's Angels, mm. the best film. Do you have that 90s, one? Another great film of the 90s. Do you know what? That was of the thousands, I, wasn't it? Probably. Yeah. I did have it, and I can't remember if I've given it away already or if mum has it down at her place in my, like, storage box that I put down there because she told me recently that she's got some DVDs of mine down there. Yeah. Super excited to find out what they are because I really want to watch that movie again. So I hope it's a part of it. That that film is excellent. Oh, yeah, we should discuss. We can't discuss it now, but we should. Once we get through all our DVDs. So good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just do Lucy Liu's back catalogue. Yeah. 
But it did make me think of Kill Bill as a accompaniment or like as a, an piece. adult version of a companion piece to to um, Charlie's Angels because Bill is Charlie. Yeah. The angels are the assassins. Mm. It's just in the Kill Bill universe, they do terrible things. And in the Charlie's Angels universe, they do great things. Yeah. No, I like that. I think that makes a lot yeah. of sense. It's a conspiracy theory. Let's start it. Let's get it going. Other favorite scenes? Well, we've already sort of talked around it a lot, but the, the fight with the Crazy 88 is pretty spectacular. And I know you can watch them on YouTube, but there's been a lot of people that have sort of broken that down and, yeah, seen where each sort of little movement's pulled from in a different film and where all the fighting stars come in. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's definitely worth, if you're interested, it's definitely worth having a look on YouTube and, and seeing some of these compilations where people have put together different clips. It's spectacular, that scene, but it does lead into that ultimate fight between Uma Thurman and Lucy Liu, which was the standout scene for me re- watching it this time the way it's shot the patience i think that tarantino sort of shows in the fight the soundscape and just the way every shot's set up is it's it's a beautiful scene it, the visuals yeah. the visuals are really beautiful and that is another scene that's taken straight from lady snowblood as well oh is it i didn't i didn't um, know that one but yeah, yeah. that, is, that <laughs> yeah. is yeah that was brilliant the only thing like sometimes i just wish i could turn like i'm not very logical but sometimes I am. Yeah. And sometimes I wish I could turn that side of my brain off. Because I was like... So Oren Ishii goes around... She wears, like, essentially a geisha's outfit. Which, if you don't know what a geisha is wearing, it's quite a, I would say, restrictive dress or gown, robe. And then it's tied around the waist with another piece of material. But the main thing is... So she's got this like quite restrictive dress on. And she's also wearing these... They're, like, platform thongs that a geisha wears and there's this scene where she I think she takes them off to fight she kind of slips out of her out of the thongs and puts her feet onto the snow but just fighting in that dress I just ah I couldn't let it go and I wish I could because I think I would have enjoyed that scene a lot more um yeah I did I did not have that issue yeah I just felt like she needed like to rip it off and have like some kind of more movable some yoga pants on underneath (laughs) or something I don't know well maybe she would have won then (laughs) Exactly, it's so true. That was her downfall. Oh, if only she knew. I do want, just one thing that I just remembered too. When I went to Japan with my brother a couple of years ago, we went to the like the eating hall that was the inspiration for that crazy eighty-eight scene. Oh wow! So it wasn't actually shot there, but it was sort of recreated to look like that. And that was pretty fun. Yeah, that's great. I, I think I've got through all of my ones. I'm just trying to think if there's. Yeah, I think that's kind of it for me too. We've got we've spoken through most of them. I don't we don't own Kill Bill two, but I really want to watch it. Are you going to watch it? Did that inspire you to watch the second one? Yeah, a little. Well, oddly enough, I watched a bit of it. It was just on after an episode of Survivor on Channel Nine a few weeks ago, so I did watch <laughs> watch a chunk of it recently too. Maybe that's one that we could do because that's another DVD that's sort of floating around my childhood household. Oh, cool. Kind of yeah. Get that one in. I'm sure my wife's going to well, love... I'm going to watch it yeah. regardless. <laughs> my wife's loving hearing me yeah. that I'm going to get extra DVDs. You know. Yeah. <laughs> She'll just rush in in a second and rip the microphone yeah. off. So I said to you before that Tarantino hates the word homage. Oh, yeah. Which I thought <laughs> just talk about a little bit because I just think it's really funny and I don't know what to make of this man. And we've talked about his... He's, 
yeah, he's not a great guy. In this film in particular, there's a couple of things. He, like Uma Thurman was assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, which we may have talked about before. Did you know that? Yeah, I knew that. I didn't know it was during this film. I don't think that was during this film, but I think Tarantino was aware of mm. it happening. And he, because I think Uma Thurman and Tarantino dated, in fact. And I believe that Uma Thurman told Tarantino and Tarantino like emailed Harvey Weinstein to be like, back off or whatever. Yeah. But amongst, you know, along with all of that horrible stuff that was happening before the Me Too movement, and, you know, I'm sure some of it continues to this day, but there's that culture of secrecy and culture of protect, protecting people and, and non, non-disclosure non agreements and whatever. Mm. So, obviously, he didn't get ousted for a long time. But he also, in this film in particular, he pressured Irma Thurman into driving in a scene where she wasn't comfortable driving. It was she, she it was her perspective that it should have been a stunt double, and he was like, no, nah, no, nah, you can do it. She then crashed and damaged her feet and legs, I think. Yeah, and this was something that came out in 2018. And, um, yeah, it sounds like an awful situation. And they've both spoken on it. Um, mm. And by the sounds of it, their relationship is repaired, which is, is good for both of them, but an awful situation. I know Tarantino has said expressed that it's the biggest regret of his life. Yeah. He says that now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like he's one of those people who is so egotistical and gets so in the moment with things that he just would have had that one track mind and he would have just been like, nah, this is what I want. This is what's happening. Very demanding, very kind of big personality, hard to say no to, I would suspect. And I think, yeah, especially for someone for him who comes from that sort of independent cinema world where it sort of was just a bunch of him and his mates fucking around and you know it it didn't have those sort of same pressures of the the workplace that Mm. a a studio sort of film becomes and i think yeah he has trouble understanding those boundaries and his responsibility to his to his workers essentially yeah as i think a lot of people um that are sort of live and breathe film do yeah because they consider themselves as artists and forget the fact that they're collaborators really Mm. like there might be your vision but you're not though you can't do it without these other people and yeah yeah but anyway he also talks about the fact that he hates the word homage because a lot of people talk about his work as homages because people can see this repeated sampling and he prefers to he has quoted picasso in saying that good artists copy great artists steal so he's quite proud of his his ability to to um, use other people's work and put it into this new context, and he's kind of refers to it as part of the postmodernism idea that um, nothing is new in art, and we're all kind of resampling things as we go anyway. Look, I'll be honest, I don't hate that. I think Hamas yeah. is probably overly wanky. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think well, I think he does saying it's an. An homage implies that he is doing it to honour the other movies. Whereas I don't think that's entirely true. Like, I don't think he's got, like, a great love for every single movie that he steals from. He probably just sees a shot that he likes and he's like, great. Yeah. Or it's going to work in this particular context. So, I don't know. I thought that was interesting Interesting about him that he's like, is he so wanky that he's post-wanky? Um, no, he's still a wanker. I think that's true, like, through and through. I think through. Being, po- being post-wanker is more wanky than just being a wanker, right? Could be, could be. <laughs> At the end of the day, he makes some pretty good films. Yeah, he does. But, Beck, was this film that he made good enough for you to keep a dodgy, filmed, <laughs> pirated copy 
in your house. No. I mean, the film was good, but I, you know, we both know that I can access this film. I think it's on Netflix and on Stan, potentially, or maybe just on Stan. But yeah, no, yeah. we're not keeping it. It's going, it's going away. I don't even think it's going to go to the op shop. I think I should chuck it out. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair enough. Hide the evidence. Um, yeah, that's right. I was a bit worried because I, I was under the impression that Disney still owned Miramax, which released this, and they haven't been great at releasing through their platform adult content they're slowly uh. releasing some 20th century fox films they released splash did you hear but they've edited out i didn't hear they've edited out the scene where you see her bottom they've put on digital hair that goes longer so it covers oh up my her god bottom. what the hell <laughs> is this on this is on disney plus yeah so i was worried that yeah maybe kill bill would disappear but turns out miramax isn't even owned by disney anymore it Hooray. was sold to some weird company and now it's part owned by paramount so i think it will be kicking around on our stands and netflix for a while great that's good i mean i probably don't need to watch it for another 10 to 15 years but just in case (laughs) well i quite enjoyed watching you know a few minutes of kill bill volume 2 when it was on nine go at 9 30 on a thursday so look if it's up (laughs) there again i'm happy to do it maybe that's how you need to watch it in like 10 minute chunks across five weeks Sounds great. Well, another Tarantino done and dusted and another Tarantino in the bin. Just kidding. I don't think his other films have gone to the bin, but <laughs> but this one is going to the bin. Not because of the movie, remember, listeners, but because this naughty pirated copy needs to be disposed of. Yeah. But don't get too bad at Beck because really she probably only stole money from Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. And it wasn't even me in the first place, guys. It was yeah. Laura. Just remember yeah, that. <laughs> Send your hate mail to Laura. No. <laughs> um, all right. Shall we wrap it up? Yeah. So next week, you don't know what we're doing. I know. Oh, oh my God. I'm so excited. Yeah. What are we doing? Well. Listeners, you're going to get my honest reaction right now. Get ready. It's everybody cut, everybody cut, everybody cut Footloose. Oh, because we talked about doing another musical. We talked yeah. about Footloose. And now we're doing it. it. And it was at the top of my DVD collection. Also, it's one that Elizabeth said she wanted to watch too. And (laughs) it's actually great when your partner makes a decision for you. Oh, yeah. That's it. I like that. Cool. And confession, Mm. I have never watched this movie. Wow. Yeah. Who would have thought? It's all right. You get to watch it now. And I'll be really interested to hear what your opinion is. Okay. Kevin Bacon. Bit of Kevin Bacon. Friend of the podcast, John Lithgow. I watched John Lithgow in a movie, Bombshell. Have you seen Bombshell? No. He is unrecognisable in the character he plays, which yeah, is Roger yeah. Ailes. I've seen the makeup because of the Academy Award nomination, but has he got an Academy yeah. Award nomination for it? No, the makeup artist did. Oh, that's amazing. Um, mm. Yeah, he is completely unrecognisable. <laughs> it's a it's an interesting movie. I would recommend watching it. It's a good movie. Yeah. Pretty pretty depressing, but uh, but great. Anyway, this has been DVD Clutter. Follow us at DVD Clutter. That is... D-V-D-E-C-L-U-T-T-E-R, I think. My on brain's a bit Facebook, <laughs> on Instagram, on Twitter. At gmail.com. Yeah. Like and subscribe and tell your friends and your neighbours and watch some DVDs while you're in isolation. 
Thanks for listening. Oh, my sister said we need to get a, a tagline that we sign off to because she said it's always awkward when we do this part. So, <laughs> guys, if you're listening and you've got a great tagline for us to use, you can tell how awkward we get at the end. Um, let us know. Yeah, I've got nothing. <laughs> DVDU later? No, nah, yeah. it's awful. Yeah, let's just say goodbye and we'll let the audience decide what our <laughs> sign off should be. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Unique New York. Unique New York. La da ta ta. Barack, Barack, Barack Obama. Oh, I like that one.